The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 5th, 2017. It still seems pretty swampy to me edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Joining me in Slate DC's studio, we now have a black tablecloth in our studio table, is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hi, David. This is presumably for sound damping. I think it's for sound. It's very felty. Uh, Then in New Haven is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hi, Emily. Happy New Year to both of you. Um, Happy Happy New Year. How are you, Emily? I'm good. I'm sick, but I'm so excited because I have this new tie line in my house. Jason, one of our fabulous producers, came and installed it yesterday, and hopefully I sound loud and Wait, what did you say? And you send, I got a tie line. <laughs> yes! But, he just played you. No, no, but I also, she responded right away as oh. opposed to before. Oh, I where, thought you were trying to trick her. Oh, no. No, no, no. I was <laughs> trying to see if to she could. what? Re- you are being so mean this morning. This is not boding well. <laughs> <laughs> but what listeners should should embrace and feel comfortable about is that that exchange just happened in real time, as right. opposed to in the last way where you'd have to wait for 10 minutes for one to pause right. and the other to pause and then one to interrupt and get angry. And now it's perfectly synchronized. This exactly. is this bodes incredibly well for 2017, which will, will be one <laughs> harmonious, frictionless forward progression. Well, I did think right. that so Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds died, whatever, on the last couple of days of the year. But the first couple of days of 2017, Charles Manson is in the hospital. Dying, perhaps in the hospital. So maybe things are looking up. Just positing that. Now that you mentioned Gerald Manson, you have a you kind of look a little bit like <laughs> Charles Manson with that new goatee too. David is looking very rough and re- and highly masculine. I feel like you should be getting on a motorcycle when you leave here with it. Highly you, masculine. Well, he's got this. Goatee. I'm so sorry. I'm not there to see this. He's got this really robust goatee that. Well, I shaved my beard down to a goatee, which Hannah, as I was saying to John a second ago, describes as the look as self-published sci-fi novelist. So. <laughs> That sounds like a real compliment, a real vote of confidence for you and your new look. Anyway, let's do a show. Welcome back to Washington, everybody. The new Republican Congress was sworn in this week on our first segment, How Will the Policy Battles Unfold? Particularly the attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare. Then the GOP stumbled right out of the blocks. Its first act, a botched effort to gut the independent ethics office of the House of Representatives. What does that portend? Then President Obama has been the north, south, east, and west of the Gabfest for really nine years since he first started campaigning, almost our entire run. So for this last few weeks of his presidency, we're going to give him a segment a week to sum up his presidency uh, in different portions. This week, we will start with the economy. What does the Obama economy look like? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter, including a very special cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, the crazy Amazon Echo murder case, which I, I'm i fascinated by, and I bet Emily has really smart things to say about. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Hello, new Congress. A giddy Republican majority, or two giddy Republican majorities, I should say, descended on Capitol Hill this week. An expanded margin in the House of Representatives for Paul Ryan and the Republicans and a narrower margin in the Senate, but still control of the Senate for Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. In full control of the Congress and the White House, Republicans are planning the most expansive legislative campaign in a generation, despite arguably popular opposition to almost every measure that they want to push. The first months of Congress and the presidency offer a huge menu of possibilities, a cheesecake factory sized menu of possibilities, Obamacare, Supreme Court nominations, Trump's cabinet approvals, rolling back Obama regulations on Wall Street, energy, immigration reform, tax reform, infrastructure funding, Russia sanctions, just so much stuff that is possible. But John, it looks like Obamacare repeal is the first First tapas on the menu yeah. is, the, uh, is the huge salad that we're about to consume. Why is that coming first? Well, because it's the fulfillment of so many promises that were made by all Republicans in the House and the Senate. And then, of course, 
the president-elect himself. Also, portions of it can be done through budget reconciliation, which is an important structural mechanism that allows or that that, uh, budget reconciliations can pass with only 51 votes, as we know from the original passing of the Affordable Care Act. And that's important because it allows an achievement on this big or a quasi-achievement on this big question without being blocked by the 60-vote threshold for ending a filibuster in the Senate. The problem with that, of course, is that um, you can only strip out parts of the law. Now, that's not the only problem. The other problem is that the Republicans can't agree on the replace part. But structurally, they couldn't replace it through reconciliation really anyway. You'd have to to, to do it in its full method, you'd have to do it through an actual piece of legislation. And that's going to be incredibly hard to get through, even if they were to be able to agree on one. So it's an early promise kept, uh, but also is going to be a fascinating, fascinating fight because A, you have all the people, you have the unwinding of this law. You also have this is now a rubber meets the mo- road moment. There were so many years in which there were votes to repeal Obamacare. And now, you know, Republicans have to actually come up with something. And then finally, the thing that they come up with has incredible cross currents with the Trump coalition in terms of what those voters want. And there have been polls out and now lots of interviews with Trump voters who who want lots of the things that that are in and a part of Obamacare. And so we'll talk about this later with the ethics question, but what we're going to see is how much does Donald Trump want an ideological victory and a policy set of prescriptions voted in and how much does he want a success that is a good piece of marketing and where those two things conflict maybe where you have a lot of conflict between the president and Republicans. So Emily, is there any way for the Republicans to launch this attack on Obamacare and start to, you know, get get the symbolic victory of repealing it without throwing healthcare into chaos and without having a plan to replace it, which they can get past. I stumble on how anything that is called repeal and delay is really <laughs> success. That's just such a weird idea that like the you take away something and then you just stall. Right. And so then the obvious question is what will happen to the insurance markets during this interim time? How long will it last? Will they collapse? And then will Republicans shoulder the blame if they do start to fall apart? Right now, obviously, when there are problems with the exchange markets, the Republicans can blame the Democrats and blame the current setup of Obamacare. But I think they're going to own it once they repeal these big parts of it. John, I have a question for you. So the distinction you were just making between an ideological victory and a marketing success, did you, when you were talking about a marketing success, did you mean, what did you mean? Did you mean that like, then he was the, that Trump would want to do something that would actually provide better or at least decent healthcare coverage for those Trump voters? Yeah, no, thank you for uh, helping me on fix that lumpy soup. I think there's an emerging, and maybe I've talked about this before. The question is, how much does Donald Trump want to go to the mat for things because he believes they're the right piece of policy? And how much does he want to do stuff that symbolically allows him to call for a win? So if you look at the car- the, the issue with the jobs at the carrier plant in Indiana, the Ford jobs, the Sprint jobs, in all these cases, it was a big, showy, shiny kind of public relations moment. And then the details underneath it suggested it was not as big of a win as Donald Trump suggested. And another version of that is let's imagine there's a huge, messy fight over whatever the replacement is for Obamacare. And Republicans who believe in a set of ideas say this is a fight worth having because what we will ultimately replace Obamacare with will be better, more freedom, more choice, better quality, lower cost. But we just are going to have to ride out the bad, ugly battle in order to get to the final result. Basically, what Obama said when he pushed the original bill through is Donald Trump going to say, "Okay, I will ride out the ugliness for all of that time because I, too, believe in a freedom market based economic approach to healthcare." Or is he going to say, this is looking really messy and I don't know why you care so much about all these like special ideas you have because they're not selling very well and I don't like that. And then he will leave them. So then the question is, do they keep riding down the road with their idea or with the president having abandoned them, what happens? Or the president says, no, we're just going to keep doing it. And he really becomes the public cheerleader for these uh, these messy ideas. The carrier plant was not a messy idea. He saved a bunch of jobs. But the legislation is incredibly messy. And what's that going to look like? And is he going to be up for that? And without, let's say he's not up for it. Let's say he's agnostic and he wants to go do other things and let Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell do what they want to do. Will that be sufficient to 
sustain what's going to be a big fight over the reorganization of healthcare. I, I want to like dwell on a couple of things. I want to dwell on one, the intellectual impossibility or the extreme difficulty of trying to figure out how to get rid of the heart of Obamacare without destroying the healthcare system. There are two key elements to Obamacare. But there, there are several elements. There's the mandate, individual mandate, which requires you to buy insurance. There is government subsidies to prop up to allow people to afford to buy insurance and basically subsidize insurers for being able to carry people who are too expensive for them. And then there is the ban on denying coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. There is no universe in which I think you can get away with reimposing the ability of insurers to deny coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. People expect it. It is the heart of it. Once you have that, you need to have an individual mandate and you need government subsidies. It's very hard to come up with a system without huge government subsidies and individual mandate that still still requires insurers to carry people with pre-existing conditions. It is just it is it doesn't make any sense. Uh, otherwise, you have huge numbers of free riders. The insurance market collapses. So it is going to be wonderful to watch Republicans try to come up with something that that wiggles them out of this problem, which is an insoluble problem. It's why we ended up with the Obamacare we had anyway. Can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. So when you look at Tom Price, the new Department of Health and Human Services secretary, presumably, when you look at his plan, the substitute for the individual mandate is this idea that you keep people who have pre-existing conditions covered if they pay for continuous coverage. But if they fall out of the market for some amount of time, then they get severely penalized. So that's the mechanism, I think, that the Republicans could, I mean, who knows what they're going to end up with, but that's sort of what they're seizing on now as an alternative. And I don't know enough about the sort of health economics of this to know how feasible it is, but it's different than taxing people because it it means that if you pulled out for whatever reason, you would then see your insurance costs presumably skyrocket and there wouldn't be anything you could do about that for several years. Yeah. I mean, I think when we're, we're going to return to a world in which people are constantly going bankrupt because of health care coverage because they were unable to 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 keep their coverage for some period of time and. Uh, right. Although it. there's another al we f alternative to this, which is so not in line with usual Republican policy, but it's threaded through the reporting on this. A lot of people in the exchanges who have high deductibles mm -hmm. and high premiums are jealous of Medicaid. They think that coverage looks better. Their coverage, which is supposed to be like more, you know, a silver plan or whatever, isn't attractive enough to make up for the additional costs of paying right. for it. And so, I mean, I can't imagine that, you know, Paul Ryan's Congress is going to do this, but there is a way in which you could imagine just expanding Medicaid, essentially taking a system that is like mostly Medicaid and, and some Medicare for older people and, and glomming that onto our well, employer base system. That's universal. I know. Well, <laughs> and the way you do it, the way Single you would, pair. the way you would do it, presumably, because there's a huge cost component to that is you would basically, if you went down that route, you would, basically say, we're going to allow coverage, but states are going to have all kinds of flexibility. So we're, we won't add any more money to the, and this is a, I'm riffing here, but because, because if the, a way to duck the big cost of doing that, which either will hit the federal government or the states is you can just claim that by giving greater freedom to the states to organize Medicaid as they would like, you will be able to cover more people at a lower cost. What that theory, should they go down that road and all these other theories require is trust in a set of beliefs and that the ball will bounce the way I predict it will bounce. And therefore, if you believe that, then you'll support this piece of legislation and we'll just hope the ball will bounce that way. That's the way legislation works. That's the way stuff happens. When that was the case with Obamacare, that thing that is built in with all legislation was used as a mark against it. So when Nancy Pelosi unfortunately said we have to pass it to find out what's in it, there's a version of that with all legislation and that that will be there will be a moment, I am guessing, in this debate over what to replace it with, where essentially that line will be brought back up again by Democrats, because it is the nature of the uncertainty of big changes like this, that that you're going to have to buy into a certain set of beliefs about the way the ball will bounce. And you'll just have to hope it bounces the way they do, or there will be big problems. And once you come to that moment, that's where you wonder what the real public support is. If these polls are right, that only 26% of the country wants a repeal, it'll be really fascinating to see how people react. Just to add one 
more thing to that when you're talking about flexibility for Medicaid with the states and kind of that idea of block grants. The fine print matters a great deal. I mean, if you imagine Medicaid as something that is going to cover a lot of working class or middle class people in addition to poorer people, you want some pretty strong indications that that is actually going to work and function and provide broad, decent coverage. When you think of block grants and flexibility for big government programs, it's hard not to think of TANF, the Replacement for Welfare, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which devolved into a kind of lowest common denominator for some states where there is very little coverage, people barely even know it exists anymore. It's become incredibly stingy in some places. So that's the kind of spectrum of possibility when you talk about flexibility for the states. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I also want to make one more point, which is, which is that whatever the Republicans tried to do to replace it, it seems clear that they, they, they want to marketize healthcare much more than it is. They, they believe they want to give more individual choice and more individual control over healthcare. This is such a terrible idea. There, basically, <laughs> there are no successful – where healthcare works in the world, it works because there's gigantic single-payer, gigantic bureaucracies, gigantic things where governments are making decisions and have collective buying power and where citizens have a lot less choice and a when lot less When you say it works, what do you mean by works? Works that everyone's covered, they get good health care, and it doesn't cost very much. Like those countries where that happens. Like where are we talking about? Canada. The UK. France. France. But isn't the question there always you're covered, but the quality and and yeah, but the evidence is not that the quality, like people, the health outcomes, the health yeah. outcomes are fine, right? So, so but, then it's a question of convenience. So then it's a question of, in other words, outcomes. the The outcomes may not be that much worse, but you're waiting longer, or maybe, you don't get or maybe see, you don't, or you don't have may, the sense of not, personal. Not necessarily. I mean, I I wait a, a tremendous amount of time to see my doctors, and it's impossible to get appointments. And also, and this is the point I was actually getting to, is this idea of that health savings accounts that you'll spend your own money, and that will be a way. Health savings accounts are plan devised by only by somebody who's never actually had to deal with the healthcare system. Health savings yeah. accounts are one of the worst ideas on the planet. It, it sounds so good on paper and it's a fucking nightmare to actually deal with a health savings account in real life. And it could only be a congressperson who has a theoretical idea about what healthcare is like. Someone who has socialized medicine, a socialized healthcare plan already that he or she is, can fall back on. Only someone like that would come up with, with a health savings account. It's a nightmare. It's confusing. They're terrible. And Americans endure a kind of a level of bureaucracy, paperwork, confusion, delay that is intolerable anxiety. and anxiety that is intolerable. And it actually isn't, I think, characteristic of the universal health care system. The universal health care systems have other problems. They do have delays. The cover, there's less innovation in, in health care. The like, very highest end health care isn't as good. But overall, as an outcome for the society, it's so much better. And I would take that in a Are you price. talking about the um, the health savings account based on your own personal experience with the ones like the the FSAs that you have as yeah. part of it? Yeah. What's an yeah. FSA? Flexible spending, spending account where you oh. can put in money and then you put it towards your your health expenditures. But proving that you actually bought the glasses that you're getting oh to, to put this money towards is a uh, – 
uh, requires like four blood tests and, uh, and three notary republics. It's a nightmare. John, going back to the politics of this, this cannot possibly be it. Can't, I, I've asked this question before. It, this cannot possibly be a backdoor for going after Medicare and trying to voucherize Medicare, is it? They yeah. can't actually be serious about wanting to do that. Well, I think the Medicare is two things. One, I mean, this again goes back to sorry to keep on going back to this point, but I think it's a I think it's an important one. I think so. Paul Ryan absolutely wants to have a, a price support plan for Medicare, what people some people might call vouchers or privatizing. Well, his argument is that that's a better system, going back to this idea of choice and using market forces to to push down cost. He wants to do that on its own terms. He also thinks it's an important part of the Obamacare fix, and he also thinks it's a part of breaking down the long-term entitlement costs of health inflation, cost inflation, which have a debt and deficit effect. And the reason he wants to do all that is because, well, A, he's just wanted to for a long time, and then B, the way he's going to try and sell it to Donald Trump for whom all of that stuff is going to be complica- A, complicated, and B, messy, and C, politically possibly volatile, and D, <laughs> a total going back on what Trump promised as a candidate, which was not to touch entitlements. The argument that Ryan will try to make is, look, if you want to do all this defense spending, and you want to do the infrastructure spending, and you want to spend your money on all this other stuff, the only way to make it add up on the budget is if you do the stuff I want. And that'll be a really interesting thing to watch, because... If Trump is as focused on the public selling part of the job as I think he is, making the case to the public that like I'm – you may be frightened about what they're saying that's being done over here on Medicare, but it's okay. It's going to work out and oh, by the way, I'm going to give you all this stuff on infrastructure and defense and whatever else. I mean that's not – I can't even imagine Donald Trump saying that. So it would be interesting to see – he's obviously found new ways to control and get his message across – for the stuff he wants to, but what about the stuff he's not as interested in? And on Thursday, we saw him start to talk about Obamacare through his Twitter account. And it'll just be, it's just, it's going to be really interesting to see. But I think Paul Ryan really does want to do what he has always wanted to on Medicare. Yeah, I mean, he's, but he is actually delusional that, that voucherizing it, I mean, you make it cheaper, it'll make it vastly worse. And also Medicare costs are coming down because of Obamacare. It's it's an insane Proposal. Well, I think it's not clear that it's coming out because of Obamacare. I think that that you can make a case that part of the healthcare inflation pause that was taking place, because I think it's now going back up again, may have been contributory, but it's not like a dead, it's not less like a slam dunk. I don't think there's any good evidence that making Medicare voucher will make health, health outcomes well, better. I mean, you can forcibly make it cheaper. You can just cause it to be cheaper right. by doing that. Well, this there's no. It goes back it to the creates, point that, creates economic insecurity and and anxiety. Exactly. And that anxiety goes back to the point I was making earlier about trust. The anxiety of you not being able to get covered in the way you think you're entitled to be covered, fear not. Because when it's the premium support is put in place or the voucher is put in place, things will be better. You have to trust. And getting people to trust based on that idea, it'll be a heck of a sales job. Healthcare is just the wrong place to make people take risks, to make people feel risks. Can I add one other point and then we can move on? The Republicans, Paul Ryan, argue that it's not the political danger that people have claimed it was because in 2012, Ryan was put on the ticket and and Romney won seniors in Florida, a place where they should be sensitive to anybody who tinkers with Medicare. The thing to watch for is that in elections, people vote for all kinds of reasons. They don't vote for necessarily only about Medicare. And in Florida in particular, older voters always vote for the – not always, but in recent years have overwhelmingly voted for the Republicans. So I guess the idea – in other words, the idea that it's not as politically toxic as as people thought because Paul Ryan was put on the ticket and Romney did better with seniors in Florida than Obama did doesn't really help you when the debate is going to be just about Medicare and just about casting a vote to change it because that's the only thing in the conversation. In an election, lots of stuff's in the conversation and you can assume that the stuff that Paul Ryan's talking about about Medicare is never going to happen and I don't want Barack Obama in office and there are all kinds of other reasons you might want to vote. So the politics of this have never really been tested. Emily, I want to close this segment by going back to sort of what the Democrats should do. Are they correct to fully oppose anything that the Republicans want to do on health care as the Republicans did to them? Or should they work to minimize damage? They're not correct to oppose anything because, you know, what if in what if the Republicans had a lobotomy or politically got forced into coming up with a good alternative? I mean, there are certainly ways to improve what we have and you could call it something else and you could reform it and you could make the health care exchanges 
more vibrant and healthier. Or as we were talking about before, you could just scrap them and expand Medicaid. So I don't think the Democrats should refuse to participate in anything categorically. But realistically, when you look at the Republican plans, no, they should not participate in trying to embroider on the edges of them to make them slightly less terrible. Do you think that is true just for health care? Do you think that's true across the board for whatever it is that the congressional and Trump agendas are going to be? I think it's true across the board in the sense that if you have a chance to help shape a good piece of legislation that you think is going to help Americans, like infrastructure as an example. I mean, a good infrastructure package is something that Democrats absolutely should support. It's like a you know, kind of heartland idea of democratic legislation going back to FDR. But if, if infrastructure means like privatizing and giving tax credits to big corporations that are then going to like own our bridges and our toll roads, then no, they shouldn't participate in it. it. It seems like it's all about the specifics and calling Republicans on ideas that Democrats think are bad ideas. And, uh, helping to participate in something that is part of the democratic agenda if such a thing were ever to exist. Right. So it's not nihilistic. It's not absolutist even even Right. It's, it's, yeah, like I mean I reject the sort of Mitch McConnell appro- or I don't reject anything. But if I was in the Senate or the House, I would say like no, we're not going to just categorically oppose everything for partisan reasons. We're going to look at the substance of this proposal and see how we think it's going to impact people. John, is this? It appears that we're going to spend at least some period of time at the beginning of the Trump administration occupied with health care and not really occupied with the big infrastructure bill or immigration reform or things that might be more popular. Goes back to that thing again. What does he want to do? Does he? He wants to do the popular stuff. He wants to do the stuff that's going to get him the fun rally crowds with big roaring people full of happy. And the thing, the stuff will do that is infrastructure and the wall. So. Then the question for Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan is how the do you wall – people really want the stupid wall bill? I thought people, nobody really thinks that the wall is going to happen. I mean, I know they want him – he, he wants to be – I mean, if you, when you go to his rallies and he mentions the wall or they start chanting, build the wall, that's juice for him. He enjoys that. I, that he's gonna, the, can he, you imagine if that's the infrastructure bill? No, 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 no. There are two separate things. There's two separate things. Although, yeah, you know, it's I funny. Don't know. It, it, it could be two. I mean, one of the ways that he may be able, if he cares about keeping the promise on the trillion dollar or or that number gets thrown around trillion dollar infrastructure bill, there's some stuff like like the Keystone Pipeline. There's stuff that he will do or that can be done that might get lumped in. Like trillion, like everything's going to be called for infrastructure at some point. Um, and maybe, then it'll maybe. total up to a trillion dollars. Yeah, exactly. No, that's really, yeah, yeah. Um, that makes sense. So who knows? He's an, he's been unpredictable, but everything we've seen so far suggests that he likes the the charge of the crowd and being able to do what he's done, you know, with the his uh, victory lap tour and his event at Carrier, which is do stuff that people applaud. The Obamacare replacement, when it comes along, he'll get applause for the repeal, but I, I think he's going to want to do the stuff that gets him bigger applause and infrastructure in the wall feel more than than a lot of this healthcare stuff but again if they are able to get pa- if, if they're able to sell this as look we repealed it and and leave all the details of the replacement for another day then maybe he gets maybe maybe that's a big he can just call that a big big victory and maybe that'll give him what he wants in terms of this feedback mechanism with his supporters so don't you think though it it's important whether he cares only about his supporters and the feedback at the rallies where repeal and wall will continue to be huge applause lines versus his favorability ratings with an approval of the larger country? Yeah. Like is it's, I mean, right? It's like is he gonna make that shift to actually care about broader opinion about him? Yeah. Well it's a good point. He comes in with lower approval ratings than Obama and George W. Bush. So he's at forty three, I think, and Bush was at fifty and Obama's in the sixties. So yeah, it's you got you gotta wonder when he's gonna care about that and also what he would do to try to change it because um Obamacare is popular with the crowds he goes to now, but it won't be as popular with a larger crowd as say infrastructure might be. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. House Republicans started their new session off with a delightful fiasco late on Monday, which is a holiday, incidentally. There was a sneak attack led by House Judiciary Chairman Bob Goodlatte to change House rules and gut the power of the Office of Congressional Ethics, an independent body that investigates ethical violations by members of Congress, which was started in 2008 after the last obscene round of congressional misdeeds. The sneak attack was publicized. There is social media these days. People notice stuff. There was a huge outcry from the public. The Congress was swamped with calls. Trump himself stepped in and criticized this move, not really necessarily the move as in general, but the timing of it, that they weren't draining the swamp by doing this. And then the House Republicans were like, oh, whoa, sorry, didn't mean it, caved, backed off, didn't make these changes. Emily, why go after this office to begin with? What possible gain is there? Do they think that people wouldn't notice what they were trying to do? I don't know whether they fooled themselves into thinking people wouldn't notice. I guess they did. And also Goodlatte tried to sell it as like strengthening the ethics investigations or at least strengthening due process. And he, they tried also to frame it as this kind of libertarian, like get government off our backs. But it was so obviously, at least in hindsight, the funniest way to begin the new Congress. And the reason they want to get rid of it is that there are 10 investigations going on right now. And this is this office is not something that the House representatives themselves control. And there's some really funny stories. And when you start reading about like the guy in California who paid $600 for an airline ticket for his pet rabbit, and the ethics office said, um, I'm not sure that's a legitimate expense. And then it turned out he had like more than $60,000 worth of questionable Duncan expenses. Hunter, say his name. Yes. Name Sorry, it. Sorry, I forgot. Name Thank and shame. You. Right. So when you hear stories like that, you realize why the, the folks in Congress would prefer not to have embarrassing revelations like that out in the media. And you also think as a taxpayer, gee, this office sounds like it's earning its keep to me. I think the most important part of this basically like cul-de-sac story is that people getting upset on social media and flooding the lines of their Congress people worked. And especially right now when a lot of progressives or people are just skeptical of Trump or wondering what kind of power they can actually wield, that seems like a real victory that the Republicans accidentally handed their opponents. John, did Trump have anything to do with the back off or was it really the public? I think it was probably a combination of factors. Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leaders, told their members who wanted to do this that they didn't think this was a good idea. But they didn't stop it. No. They didn't, and they didn't work hard to stop it. And I'm sure Paul Ryan could have stopped it had he fought hard enough. So fair point. And this goes back to the previous point I was making. When Donald Trump abandons you, now you're on your own and or more tweets to come from the president-elect. And so... They decided it's not dead. It's been shelved for the moment. The idea was this is just bad PR for the moment. Let's shelve it. And basically leaders went to the members who wanted to make this change and said, look, if you want to continue to do this, you're going to have to have an open vote with debate on the House floor. And nobody wanted to, to have that open debate, especially at the beginning of the term. So I think it's we're going to have another round of this. I think it's in August that there's supposed to be a report from the Ethics Committee on itself. Um, and maybe that'll be the next moment we get this. But um, I think this will come back again. But this was just a it's a, a, a bad launchpad explosion for the new. I mean, I don't think it has any long-term effects, but it would have if it were if it continued on and on for several days. Why do you think it won't have any long-term effects? Well, I just think there are going to be a billion other things to occupy the mind and not all of them shiny objects. I mean, I think we've, you know, we talked about Obamacare and and tax reform and infrastructure and immigration. There's just going to be so much for people to be consumed with. This will pass uh, I think pretty quickly because the dog didn't bark. You know, when it comes up again, it'll 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 matter. I think another way it'll matter, of course, is if there is an additional ethics scandal. Democrats will certainly be able to say, "Yeah, this is the kind of thing they were going to try and hide," and thank goodness they weren't allowed to. That stain still exists and could be politically problematic. Emily, this does suggest that the Republicans in Congress are not going to dig too deeply on Trump Trump's violations of the Emoluments Clause. 
they were unlikely to see an impeachment of of Trump for self-dealing and and getting foreign governments to fund his projects and that form of corruption because they don't doesn't seem that they're all that corruption focused these guys right except that it is the sort of card that they hold in their back pockets right i mean if trump spins out of control if he literally jumps into the arms of vladimir putin or does something rattles North Korea in a way that actually like nuclear war begins or I mean, just these various like somewhat paranoid and yet not totally insane scenarios out there. The Republicans in Congress are going to be able to hold this over him because he's going to be technically and perhaps seriously in violation of the emoluments clause, presumably the minute he steps into office. It doesn't seem like he's planning to take the steps that, you know, the ethics experts have been begging him to take to prevent any of that. And so it does sort of hang out there over his head in a way that could be a little bit useful to them. Really? Do you think they'd ever do anything? It is so- I do think it's possible. It just depends. We This is such an unpredictable presidency. Like, we stand at the beginning of it. I mean, from their point of view, Mike Pence would be a much easier person to work with, and I'm sure they'd all sleep better at night. Hmm. John, do you think that's crazy? No, I don't think it's totally crazy. Not totally crazy. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I mean, it's just bizarre, the level of conflict of interest that the Republicans were so upset about what the Clintons were doing, the Clinton Foundation were doing. It's for thee and not for me. I mean, it's it's really shocking. There was a great National Review column by Jim Garrity, which I think was the headline was, I guess we're just not going to make a fuss about that, which was all about the things which Republicans were crazed about during the campaign, about conflict of interest to the Clintons or the absence of press conferences by Hillary Clinton or you know, there's a series of examples and he's just said, pointing out like, oh, now we're not going to make a fuss about it. Well, and ju- add Julian Assange and Julian the Republicans Assange, to that. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, and this goes back to the conversation we've had a million times over the years, but that partisanship just determines everything now. Support for the Russian, support for Putin and the Russians has gone up in the Republican Party since Trump has been elected. Support for Julian Assange. Frank Luntz tweeted some poll that shows Support for Julian Assange has gone up in the last uh, several months among Republicans for whom he was a particular kind of evil before because he was he had endangered the lives of American troops. Yeah, yeah, it's really sickening. And that actually, I mean, just to, I want to just to put a button on this, going back to the question around health care, should the Democrats co- cooperate? And, you know, one school of thought is, you know, you don't this is partisan chip. It's partisan war. This is everything my opponent wants. Uh, I fight. And that's how it is. And that's the way Republicans have carried forth. I actually think that despite all the evidence of the last eight years where Obama got screwed and Democrats were played as patsies over and over again by seeking some form of cooperation, I think that is the only way in the long term the republic is held. The republic will not be healthy unless we have parties that treat each other as respectful rivals who are to be worked with, you know, partners in creating a better America. We can't simply keep breaking everything all the time. Everything cannot be partisan. And so you just have to act. The Democrats, even if the Republicans won't act this way, the Democrats have to act as if they have a trustworthy, honest partner and sort of seek the best outcomes with it. In the long run, I think that's the only way we survive with the political system we have. But there's certainly no good signs about it. President Obama's final few weeks in office are here. He is taking justifiable, in my view, victory laps around the country. He is vastly popular. His wife, Michelle Obama, is the most popular figure in the country. He leaves the office of the presidency untouched by a whiff of scandal with uh, an economy that's been growing for years, with 76 straight months of job growth, with marriage equality, with Osama bin Laden dead, with smaller wars. He's been the alpha and omega of this podcast, the most important politician in my adult life, or maybe I would say the politician that I admire the most in my life. And we're going to take the opportunity of his departure to talk about how he governed and how he leaves the country. So for the next three weeks this week, starting this week, we're going to do a segment about him and his his legacy. This week, the economy. I think you can argue it round or you can argue it flat. The economy President Obama inherited back in 2009 was in free fall. We lost 700,000 jobs the month before he took office. The Great Recession was full swing. The economy was shrinking at 8% annually. Car makers were on the verge of default. 
And he took very positive action with very little help from Republicans. He got a stimulus passed. We've had steady job growth for seven years. We had loans to the car makers. Car makers are now profitable. GDP growth has been strong or has been adequate for several years. We have also avoided the catastrophes that Europe, which has pursued much tighter policies, much less Keynesian policies, and has suffered accordingly. It has had much less economic growth. Yet inequality remains at record high. Labor force participation has dropped. All of the new jobs that have been created in the Obama recovery have been temporary jobs, essentially. So, Emily, what part of this picture is most persuasive for you? Has this been a, a great economic presidency, an adequate one, or a poor one? Isn't it so hard to judge these things in the moment? I mean, you did a really good job of the glass half full part of this, and then you kind of flicked at the end at half empty. <laughs> Right. Right. So His approval em- rating, by the way, is at 53%, which is not like vastly popular. Although you could argue in today's partisan world, maybe 53% would have been like 58% 20 years ago. But anyway. Yes. Just to let a little air out of the balloon. Right. So, I mean, half empty seems I believe in giving Obama his due and the fact that they averted this huge crisis in 2008 and did not get a big victory lap for that. That's like a real thing. And, you know, this is where... The president's marketing and communication strategy was not great. He keeps giving lots of blame to that. And one does wonder, watching Trump take these big victory laps over very small interventions like the carrier plan, which we keep invoking, even though every time I read about it, the number of jobs actually saved has has sunk even lower. Anyway, one does wonder if Obama had been better somehow at making the country feel a sense of, you know, he, he was heading this ship out of this terrible storm, whatever, if that would play very differently now. But I do think the rising inequality and the fact that, yes, unemployment is down, but there are all these people, especially men in prime ages who've taken themselves out of the workplace. And then when you look at the kinds of jobs created, we're talking about home health care aides, customer service representatives, service jobs. People don't have the same sense, it seems, of kind of fulfillment and um, security that they had from the kinds of jobs that have gone away. Now, it's hard to know how much we're supposed to blame the president for that because it has so much to do with the shifting world economy. I do wonder, though, if we're going to look back and think that the fundamental error of this presidency wasn't to side more with um, working class people like, you know, the fight for 15, the rise in the minimum wage. Maybe the $15 minimum wage is just totally unrealistic for the country. I don't know. But I do think that Obama perhaps out of necessity and being a grown up or perhaps out of a lack of imagination kind of p- didn't never like really came down on this on, in a kind of, you know, big new deal FDR populist sense. And maybe that was unrealistic. The politics wouldn't have allowed for it. But one does wonder, I, I wish we could run the tape and watch what would have happened if he had tried. Yeah. I mean, there, there was that, I remember this example and I'm sure I'm going to botch it, but they, there was some, tax cut that was given, which nobody ever realized they got because it was one of these things which which it was just a slightly lower rate and you were getting a few dollars extra in each check because it was, it was something the government was not taking out. It was never really announced like you're getting a big tax cut because of the economist, because like my pal Jason Furman, who's the smartest person I know, realized that you get much more beneficial economic offense, effects if people get this money doled out to them in, in small ways and it becomes sort of naturalized and that, that whereas the, the big honking check is from the government, which says tax rebate, is it's a much less economically efficient way to distribute money. But that was optically a very bad thing to do because people didn't realize they had lower taxes. They didn't notice it, even though they were had actually more money to spend. They didn't give any credit to that to the administration in any sense and didn't didn't feel like thanks, Obama, for that. Um, so if you polled people, were your taxes higher or lower, people would say they were higher or the same and hadn't realized that, oh, I've gotten this tax cut. That's an example of like really bad, really bad optical management. Trump, Donald Trump will not make a mistake like that. If we get a tax cut, it will be the Trump tax cut, I'm sure. 
John, do you think on any of the things that have not improved, notably around inequality and on labor force participation, there were huge failures where Obama missed opportunities or these were things that he just couldn't have done yeah, given the I, circumstances? I don't know. I feel, um, having recently been trying to struggle my way through The Rise and Fall of American Growth by Robert Gordon, which uh, struggle only because of my own limitations, not because of the book, um, which argues <laughs> essentially there was a special time in American history from basically the 1870s to 1970s when America grew at big rates because of very specific and special things. And that... What that has me thinking about is, and this is a part of this larger conversation, is the growth numbers during Obama are pretty anemic. So they've not been stellar. Now, immediately people will say, yeah, well, but look at what he inherited and look at where the economy was and there are changes going on. And so so the question here is context. And it, the context is not only what Obama inherited, but also the context, if you buy Gordon's theory, that the American economy – it's just in a different place now than it was yep. historically. So to, to judge it by historical big growth standards during the, that 100-year period I mentioned is fundamentally wrong. So if that's the case, then how do you measure whether this is not stellar growth or is stellar growth? Now, we're about to have, and Emily said, run the tape, we're about to have a, a super big experiment. We were in Knoxville over the holidays, and Anne was talking to somebody who owned a small business and who said they were opening a new expanding their business significantly in a way. And they said, I wouldn't have done it if Donald Trump hadn't been elected. And the argument was essentially, you know, he's going to be more favorable. There are going to be fewer regulations. Taxes are going to go down. And just the business environment is better. Now, anecdote is that. I don't even believe that. I don't believe that for one second. I don't believe that's meaningful. Well, it's a not right. meaningful example, but so, go ahead. It's anyway. interesting that people are telling that story, though. It's yeah. not the only anecdote like that I've heard. Yeah. So that may be totally uh, meaningless. On the other hand, there may be people who, for whom that, uh, if that, if that feeling, let's put it this way, if that feeling goes beyond that single right. instance. I hope it does. And I hope it does. Yeah. And if it goes past that single instance, then what, is, what does that look like? Then there will be growth. And if there's growth, will the money be put into wages, into hiring, and all the rest of it? and therefore growth will go up and all of the beneficial effects as a result of it will happen. Um, we're about to have a big experiment. So I guess my point is in the big experiment, A, whether this emotional response exists is one part of it. And then the second part is they're about to, Republicans in Congress and this president collectively are about to pull out as many restrictions and regulations as possible across a whole variety of industries. And the argument being, if you unshackle private enterprise, there will be lots of growth. We're about to see whether that argument is will bear fruit. To me, the biggest missed opportunity of the Obama economy is one which he which he deserves some blame for because he didn't work on it rhetorically, which is that we had because interest rates were basically zero and borrowing costs were thus zero, especially for the U.S. government. We missed this incredible opportunity to make major infrastructure investments. Infrastructure is something which is which costs up front, it explodes the deficit up front, and then it pays off in these huge ways because you get better transportation networks, you get better technology networks, you have better energy networks. And he got some of that. He got, you know, $700 billion worth from the original stimulus package. But there was a period of seven years after that where you could have made massive investments in infrastructure and made a long-term investment in the in the country that would have been hugely valuable also would have created jobs and he he was unable to do it and he didn't really push for it that hard and there's no republicans never would have passed it there was no appetite for deficit expansion under obama even though there clearly is about to be appetite for deficit expansion under trump but he didn't make an effort on that and that's that i think historically we will regret as a country and i don't i don't think obama deserves a lot of blame for it. But as a country, we will regret the fact that we didn't use this period to make our roads better, make our networks better, make our you know ports better. And and that's a that's a real bummer. Does this go back to the division from, I don't know, 2008, 2009, where Rahm Emanuel was saying jobs, not health care. Let's do that first. Let's employ people. They're going to care about that more. And was that realistic? Like, could he could the presidency have taken that turn instead of doing healthcare. Well, healthcare is also a great infrastructure investment. And if you think of human capital as being a thing that you want to invest in, and healthcare is is the 
would, you know, if it sticks, would be the great achievement of the Obama administration. But they were unable. I mean, they tried on the stimulus, but the, the stimulus bill they presented was was half the size of what most economists wanted it to be. But they couldn't have gotten a they dollar a more out of it. And I think that's I think that's right. They couldn't get the because of Democrats who were abandoning the bigger dollar amount. A and then B, they did in the Obama even. Much later, when when Obamacare when the when the website was about to go online, I remember White House officials making the case really uh, pointedly that you know this was likely to be the greatest economic payoff that people would feel in the Obama era because the rescue the whatever he all the things he did to rescue, and I think this goes again back to when you think about what Obama inherited, it's not just the actual state of the economy, but it is the forced march that it put him and Congress on right away at the beginning of his presidency to solve those problems in an emergency fashion. Donald Trump has a much and George W. Bush had much more relaxed beginnings of their presidencies to to implement and try to do what they wanted to do because of the state of the world when they both came into office than what Obama faced from the um, in his early days. But um, the, the Obama White House argued that when people got Obamacare, they would credit the White House in economic terms because of that economic <laughs> economic anxiety that they felt, which was like – because – and we've seen for a long time, and Alan Greenspan used to talk about this extensively, is that your benefit that, – that it's no longer just about wages, that the important thing to look at is people's wages and benefits. And so to the extent that people started to think about their economic conditions, not just in terms of what they got in their paycheck, but also their – the health benefits they got, if that was true, then when you increase and improve those health benefits – so the theory went, people will feel more economically secure. So the theory went. Yeah, that's gone well. Um, <laughs> any other areas around the economy where you feel like, oh, you know, Obama, good job, or Obama, what a bummer. I'll, I'll give one more, one small example, which is that he had really serious people around him. They took data seriously. They were careful. They were, sought political gain, but they were they were the best of breed. The economists he had working for him, Jason Furman, I already cited as one example, just really, really, really smart and really serious about looking at what data shows them and willing to follow what that data shows them for the most part. And I, I admired that and respect that. And I hope that is not something that that seems manifestly to be an interest of Donald Trump and his appointees. The Obama economists were pragmatic more than they were ideological. And that's good. And I don't know that we're going to see that again. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a single malt before dinner, John Dickerson, what will you be boozily slurring to Ann Dickerson? <laughs> I was looking at this book uh, called Jubilee, which is 100 Years uh, of the Atlantic, which was published in 1957. And there is a section, it's a series of things that appeared in the Atlantic over the beginning of its history. And here is a section on love in America, in which they reprint an article from 1863 by, by Miss Gail Hamilton. And she is writing about a waltz that she witnessed. Waltzing is a profane and vicious dance, always. When it is prosecuted in the center of a great crowd in a dusty hall on a warm midsummer day, it is also a disgusting dance. Night is its only appropriate time. The present mode of dress renders waltzing almost as objectionable in a large room as the boldest feats of a French ballet dancer. <laughs> I saw scores and scores of public waltzing girls, and among them all, I saw but one who understood the art, or at any rate, who practiced the art of avoiding an indecent exposure. Do I shock ears polite? I trust so. Anyway, it was a, a wonderful introduction to a series of essays about the changing mores in American culture. So don't go Waltzen. I love that. That was great. Emily, do you have a chatter? I have a chatter. I have a nerdy chatter. I have two board games to recommend from our holiday that I had not played before and that my family and various other friends and family really enjoyed. The first one's called Code Names. Have you guys tried this game at all? No. No. It's a word game. You can play it with lots of ages, which is kind of unusual. Like the grandparents also enjoyed it and so did the kids. It's like a guessing game about words and the connections you make with words, but you can 
you play in teams. It was really fun. And then the other one, which um, I'm terrible at because I cannot draw to save my life, but was super fun anyway, is called Telestrations. And it involves like drawing a picture and sort of a game of telephone tag involving pictures and imagining what the pictures stand for. Um, it's just really hilarious and silly. So anyway, if you're looking for a new board game and you haven't tried one of those, I recommend them. That's great. Uh, we played this game called Mao. Do you guys know this? No. It's called Mao after Chairman Mao because it's it's a game where you don't know the rules and the rules constantly change. <laughs> it's a also car, known it's a as the game. election of twenty sixteen. Yeah, it was it, it's so <laughs> vicious. It is it is just vicious and cruel and confusing. And you don't you when you start, you don't even know what's happening. It's pretty it's pretty awesome. The Kafka of games. Yeah. Everyone in my family, we're all pretty aggressive. <laughs> we made us so extremely unpleasant. Huh, that sounds like such a fun activity, David. I <laughs> yeah, can't right, wait exactly. to try it. Huh. If you have it, if you if it's sort of coordinated by a good spirited person, it really works. If it's coordinated by somebody like me, it doesn't. <laughs> Constantly telling people to pay attention to the rules, which are n- never clear. There's like you're you're constantly giving people penalties for like talking, <laughs> stupidity. Anyway, my chatter. It's a tough one this week. Marriage, I think you guys know I've long been an advocate for marriage. I am married. All of us here in the Fest are married. All of us, I hope, happily married. I'm happily married. But it's 2017, and I am starting to have my doubts, and let me explain why. There is a ton of despair in this country. We got marriage equality, and what's happened? The world has been falling apart. The, You're going to oh, blame the world falling apart on marriage equality. I don't know. I just I just want to lay out some evidence. I like this is correlation, all correlation, not causation. Emily, I'm a rational person. You're uh-huh. get wait for it. I'm going to get to this. The Obamas had a happy marriage. Where to get them? Like just the Clintons. <laughs> but Clintons, you just claim that he Clintons, was the greatest president of your the Clintons, lifetime. The Clintons stayed married, stuck it out with this marriage, and totally were beaten up for this marriage, whereas you have this five times divorced adulterer in the White House, serial adulterer and divorcer in the White House, the happy conjugal rejected and disavowed and denied by the public. And I think that what I'm starting to realize is that maybe it is time to call a stop to marriage rather than us glorifying marriage, but to call a stop to it and end this ridiculous institution of chaining yourself to another wonderful person for the rest of your life, to end it, or maybe just to test ending it. And this is where you guys and I, we're rational people, and I what I would propose is that we run some controlled trials about marriage and see what the results are, see if it's as bad as I expect it's going to be. If it's as bad as I expect it's going to be, we can end it or at least can, you know, sort of think about ending it. If it, if it goes well, you know, we'll continue it. So here's what I propose. I propose that the three of us, we pick two single Americans completely at random, have them get married and closely observe them. If this marriage goes well, I will withdraw my complaints. If it doesn't, we will do further study. Does this sound like a plan for you guys? Well, actually, <laughs> I no what he's talking about, but yes, it sounds like a good plan. No, this is crazy. We're putting way too much weight on this like N of one study that you've just. Gonna... <laughs> but I know that's true. He wouldn't. He didn't like my anecdote. Totally verified and right. rock solid about business. Uh, I just. Well, it's 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 a limited pool. We can start with. Okay, can we just, just try to start? We're with... putting a lot of weight on this. Okay, we're going to try it, but I I resist right. the larger implication okay, that you insist you, on I, drawing. I'll take the blame for it. I'll take the blame. Okay. John, can you get us a name at random from the I internet white pages here? I've got, I'm going to now Google. Let me see here. I think Try I to make will, sure they're single, though. Oh, all right. Uh, okay, well, that, that, that leaves the search I was looking for. Um, okay, I will go for hammer throwing, uh, bike mechanic and ultimate frisbee. Okay, we have Ann Silver, who's from Connecticut, lives in Seattle, <laughs> and is a lawyer. Apparently, those skills apparently all. Are Wait, does that? It, it sounds like Emily. She's from yeah. Connecticut. And she's <laughs> right a lawyer. there, you go, Emily. Are you a secret car mechanic who throws the hammer? Oh my god, I wish I was a secret car mechanic. So what, sorry, we, what was the and and silver. silver? Okay, so we have one person. All right, Emily, pick a second person. Can be male or female. This is, we are, you know, we're in the age of marriage equality. You do it. Right. Although David just associated it with the decline of civilization, but that's fine. Yeah. Well, I feel a little lame for being so um, gender traditional here, but 
I'm looking around on this wide world of the internet, and I'm coming up with a guy named Ian Schreiner. He's a doctor, and he also lives in Seattle, which seems super useful for conducting this experiment. I think that's going to make it a lot easier. And also, if you check out his LinkedIn profile, he has some really lovely attributes. It sounds like he is spontaneous and extroverted and intellectually curious and someone who is super supportive of his partner. And I really like that this. On I think that's... you're stalking him. Well, it's like a special yeah. LinkedIn dating profile. But I have to read you this last part. When you're with him, you want to be your best self, but you're also not afraid to be your worst. Wow. That sounds great. Well, should we make uh, Anne and Ian our guinea pig? Sure. Yeah. Ian Schreiner, will you marry Anne Silver? So we are going to have to update our listeners about the outcome of this marriage proposal. We'll find and the marriage itself. <laughs> yeah. What's the term <laughs> limit here? <laughs> yeah. Are we going to get annual reports? We'll find out. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer today is AC Valdez. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate GabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Give us your marriage proposal. Rate us based on how good a marriage proposal we do on your behalf. It really helps us. Search for Slate Political Gap Fest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Ann Silver and Ian Schreiner, I'm David Plotz. We'll see you next week. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Probably won't see you. <laughs>